Okay, this is kind of a strange weekend for me because my daughter is due any time. So if my watch buzzes and I just walk off the stage, you know what happens. Yeah. Also, uh, you know, I won't, but I have uh, my wife and I will, been, will have been married 30 years next Monday, and yeah, lucky woman. But I, uh, man, lotto winner. But I, uh, um, I will not be here next weekend. But we keep thinking, <laughs> we keep thinking it's going to happen when we leave town. You know what I mean? <laughs> so okay, I'll gladly cancel those reservations. But anyway. Okay, we're going to continue on in the book of James. Uh, we're in our faith series, which covers the book or letter or epistle of James. Uh, I'll give you the quickest recap I can. Uh, the James who wrote this letter was the half-brother of Jesus, uh, and he was writing to uh, Jews who had been converted to Christianity who were scattered throughout Palestine. Now, these Jews were being massively persecuted by just everybody uh, and were really struggling and uh, were kind of starting to fall back a little bit. Some of them were and were getting tied into some things they shouldn't be. Uh, so James wrote them to kind of encourage them to, you know, stay the course and to stand firm in their faith. Now, today we're going to discuss the Christian perspective on judging, on life planning, and on sin. Okay, and I believe the, the root of what James is trying to teach in these verses is basically just perspective. Okay, first of all, perspective on how we talk about and judge each other. Okay, and one of the things you hear me preaching all the time is we shouldn't be judging each other. That's why people don't like Christians, you know. Uh, second perspective is gonna how, uh, how much control we allow God to have in our life and our future planning. Uh, and the third perspective is on what uh, we should consider sin. So I titled this message, Faith and Life Perspectives, uh, because really, no matter what we do or say, I mean, a godly perspective will help us see things more clearly. So let's jump right in, uh, starting in chapter 4, James chapter 4, verse 11. He says, Do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. There's only one lawgiver and judge. The one, notice that's capitalized, the one who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you uh, who judge your neighbor? I love that. He's basically saying, who do you think you are? I love that. Now, remember, the audience that he's talking to, again, was predominantly Jewish. Okay, they were just predominantly Jewish, but they were Jewish believers. And the Jews saw the law of Moses as sacred and they should have. I mean, they should have, and we should too. But the Jews even more so because, believe it or not, they even taught their children how to read with the law. Okay, so those children were raised to know and memorize that law. It was very, very uh, important to them. And knowing that should make what James said in verse 11 even more important. If you look in verse 11 again, he says, Do not speak against one another, uh, brethren. He who speaks against the brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you are a judge of the law... You are no longer a doer of the law, but a judge of it. So James said, speaking against another believer to those Jewish believers, he was saying speaking against a brother was like speaking against the law. And that doesn't sound like that big of a deal, but to the Jew, that was a capital offense. You could be put to death for saying something negative about the law of Moses. That's how serious they took it. That was a, a capital offense. And that's why James said doing so made them judges, judges rather than like doers of the law. Now, in verse 12, James basically said that they were the ones who were speaking against their brothers and the ones who were judging. This is a pretty unique perspective. He said they were playing God. That's basically what he was saying. Look at 12 again. There's only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you who judges your neighbor? Because the only one who has the knowledge and wisdom to fairly judge is God. He is the only one who has the knowledge and wisdom to do that. Now, a lot of people say, well, how do we apply that 
to modern-day Christianity, to people who are not under the law, but people who are under grace, like right now. Basically, it's kind of the same concept, because judging a believer today is like uh, judging against and speaking against the grace and spirit of God that gave us eternal life. See, we have to remember that every believer is in a different phase of their faith. And sometimes we forget that. You know, we always think everybody should be where we are, and other people probably think we should be where they are, but we forget that everybody has phases in their faith and, and are growing. So when you see somebody living in a way that maybe you perceive as wrong, and remember, let me, let me stress that, what you perceive as wrong, it's really smart that you don't judge them. You need to be really careful because God may be in the process of restoring them that very moment. He may be showing them the error of, his, of their ways. And when you step in and, you know, basically stop minding your own business and step in, you might be interfering with God's restoration process. Because sometimes when, when, I don't know if you've ever done this, but when someone judges you or someone kind of comes at you, you automatically become defensive. And with defensiveness comes pridefulness, and with pridefulness sometimes we just kind of push God away and, and, and give in to our anger. So you've got to be really careful about judging people. You don't know what God's doing in their life, but I do know this much, He's God and we're not. So <laughs> I think we should leave that to Him. Now, the main reason we're not supposed to judge others, and I love this, is we're just not qualified to. Before you judge somebody else, stop and think for a second. That person you see in the mirror every morning, have you really thoughtfully judged everything about that person's life before you judge somebody else's? Have you? Because you have no right to judge anyone but that face in the mirror, as beautiful as it may be. That is the face you should be judging. Look at this, Leviticus 19.16. He said, you shall not go about as a slanderer, meaning someone who talks bad about someone, as a slanderer among your people, and you are not to act against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. See, our judgment is based on emotion. How many people here are emotional? Be honest. Are emotional people. I am kind of. Okay? Okay, a lot. All right? Uh, we judge based on our emotions. We judge based on our, on our anger. At that moment, you know, we, we judge based on our personal bias, our, our, our lack of information, right? But God, on the other hand, he judges based on his all-knowing sovereignty. He knows everything. That's how he judges. That's why God said we should never seek revenge because we can't judge people fairly. And we don't judge people fairly. Look what Paul said in Romans 12, starting verse 17. He says, never pay back evil for evil. Respect what is right in the sight of all men, if possible, so far as depends on you, be at peace with all men. I think, this is a side note here. I love that verse because, you know, when people go off, they go, well, it does say, if possible, be at peace with all men. I'm like, I think you're reading that wrong. It also says, as far as it depends on you, meaning control yourself, you know what I mean? So it says, as far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Verse 19, never what? Never take your own revenge. Beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I love that. I will repay. I will do the repaying, says the Lord. See, our revenge and our judgment is based at least partially on our sin nature. I'm going to let you guys in on something here, and, and if you're self-righteous, you're going to hate this, as you should. But we all sin. Pastors, deacons, elders, people in praise teams, people, you know, everywhere. They're, becoming a believer does not mean you become perfect and sinless. I sin. I'm good at it. I sin. Everybody sins. We all have this nature that wants to sin. And you see it in your children. If you tell your children not to do something, what is the most important thing in the world that they get a chance to do after that? What you told them not to do, right? I mean, that's just, that's just the most important thing in the world to them. That's their sin nature. 
at work, right? So basically, our revenge and our judgment are more about pleasing us than pleasing God. That's what our revenge and our judgment is really about. Have you ever been hurt by someone? How many people have really been hurt by someone? Raise your hand. Then there's always that person who goes, not me, nothing bad ever happens in my life. Lucky guy. When you're hurt by someone, don't you want to hurt them back sometimes? Be honest. Don't be self-righteous. Somebody does something to you, you're thinking, bless their heart, I'm going to get them back. <laughs> but if you say bless their heart, it's okay, right? You can do anything after you say that, right? You want to get them back. You want them to feel the same hurt that you're feeling. Or have you ever been betrayed by somebody? Raise your hand if you've been betrayed by somebody. Somebody close to you especially, it really hurts. But when we're betrayed by somebody, our sin nature says we need to go out and tell everybody what they did so we can get people who will agree with us in being angry and bitter at them. You want to get consensus about your anger with them and, and you want people hating them and, and being bitter against them the way you are. That's why we're not supposed to judge. See, God's judgments, God's judgments aren't about getting even. They're about justice, actual justice. They're about forgiveness. They're about restoration. So, I mean, we should just leave the correction and the judgment to God. You know, people, the reason a lot of people don't want to go to church, there's a, lot, there's a lot of them. And I get it. I'm not that guy that says, I don't understand. I do. There's a lot of Christian people out there that if I wasn't saved, would be pushing me out of church too. Right? They're out there. They exist. Right? We act like it's Sasquatch and it's hard to see one and it's rare. No, they're everywhere. But, but the thing we have to remember is God loved this world so much that knowing we were sinners, knowing we would never be better than that, Knowing we would make mistakes, that we'd make bad decisions, knowing that we would betray him time and time again, we would turn against his rules time and time again, knowing all that, he still loved us enough to send his son to die on our behalf. Now think about this. Before you judge somebody, before you butt your nose in someone else's business and start being judgmental and condescending, right? Remember this. Jesus died on a cross for them, just like they are. And had they been the only person to ever sin, he would have still sent his son to die for them because that's how much God loves us. We have to remember that before we judge people. You're not just judging some random person or a random believer. You are judging a creation of God that he sent his son to die for. Think about that. Now, verse 13, this is where he starts talking about his perspective on life planning. Now, he gives us kind of a scenario. He probably has seen this scenario, but he gives us a very... Uh, generic scenario. He says, come now you who say today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make profit. Okay, so in in verse 13, he actually, James starts really sharply criticizing those who boast about their future business plans. He really starts criticizing them pretty hard because he felt like in doing so, they were blatantly disregarding something real important. They were disregarding the temporary and unpredictable nature of life. They were forgetting all about that, right? They're just judging like they have complete control. And we don't have complete control. We'll talk about that here in a minute. They would even, the example he gives us, they were even confidently planning out like every detail of their future business, like it was a done deal. I mean, notice it says that they planned out the location where they would execute this business plan. They planned out their travel time to that location. It was going to be two days that they traveled because, you know, God knows there's never anything goes wrong on traveling, Right? It was going to be two days. And they had planned out how long it would take to complete their business. He said it would be one year. We'll stay there one year. Then they even planned out the fact that they were going to make profit. So this was just going to be a profitable venture. But there was 
one thing that they forgot, and something that was totally out of their control, they forgot to add to their plans, and that is their mortality. The fact that we do not know when we're going to die. So James kind of reminded them they had no guarantee of even one more day. Look at this, verse 14. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while, then vanishes away. Right? Now Solomon spoke about this kind of arrogance in the book of Proverbs. Look at Proverbs 27.1. He says, Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day might bring forth. Isn't that true? That is so true. We never know what's coming until it comes. So James is saying it's arrogant to make plans like that. So the only way to make plans without uncertainty is to make them through God. Allow God to be a part of that, that, that plan-making process. And there are times that, you know, as believers, if we're honest with ourselves, there's times as believers that we all become arrogant and we all forget who's running things, don't we? There's times we just totally forget that. We do the same thing we see James talking about here, even if we don't realize it, we do the same thing, except we do it with work. We do it with retirement. Oh, here's what I'm going to do. Here's what I'm going to invest. Here's how I'm going to retire. I'm going to spend my time. I worked for a guy one time. When I was a kid, I worked at McDonald's. It was the only place that would work around my football schedule. And I remember when I was there, there was the man who owned it. He was like 54 at the time. Really good man. I really liked him. He owned three McDonald's. And he would always talk about, he and I actually, you know, I was only 16, but we kind of connected. And we would talk about his future, and he said, listen, I don't want to do this the rest of my life. Because he was the kind of owner that would go to each store and make fries and, and help cook and, and serve. He said, I'm going to do this till I'm 55. And then I'm going to sell all three of them, even if it be, you know, to the family. I'm going to sell all three of them. I'm going to take that money, and I'm going to retire at a young age. Well, 55 came around, and he did sell his McDonald's, all three of them. And he made millions of dollars. 55, retired millionaire he died at 56 died at 56 that was a part of his plan he didn't include and he was a good man don't take me wrong but you can't not plan for your mortality right you have to be able to plan for that so the only way you can plan where you have certainty is to do it through god but we all get in that thing where we really honestly believe that we're in charge and we say here's how i'm going to work here's what i'm going to do with my retirement here's what i'm going to do with my investments here's what i'm going to do with my relationships and realistically none of those are under your control None of them. Because there's one inevitable truth that we tend to forget due to our, you know, our human, natural human arrogance. And that is the fact that, that everyone who is born dies. Okay, I love what the writer of Genesis said, Genesis 3.19. He says, By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust, what? You shall return. <laughs> I don't know why I'm telling you this, but I'm going to. Um, somebody was getting cremated one day, and, and someone asked me, they said, do you, think that's a, do you think that's a bad idea? I'm like, well, they're not alive. They're not going to feel it. They said, no, but if they're cremated, what body will God have to resurrect and make over new? I'm like, well, first of all, he made us out of dirt, you know, so I don't think there's any lack of natural resources to make us out of, first of all. Second of all, if you dig up a grave of someone who was buried 200 years ago, they're dirt, you know, <laughs> it's sad, but as much pride as we put into ourselves, we are walking, breathing piles of dirt, we just don't know it, right, that's what it is, and so that's the truth that we all leave out, we will all die someday, it's inevitable, see, the enemy wants you to believe that it's foolish to consult God about your future plans, that's just foolish, have you ever noticed that the world tries to tell us to draw lines, church is church, life is life, you ever notice that, 
Don't bring church into work. Don't bring work into church. And Jesus says the opposite. He says, live this life every day. Take it everywhere you go. But the world wants us to separate those two. And so the enemy wants us to think it's just foolish to consult God. But the Bible tells us something totally different. The Bible tells us that the one who tries to live and plan their life without God, that's the one who's the fool. And I'm not saying that, you know, this is, I'm quoting, look at this, Psalms 10.4. It says, the wicked in their haughtiness of his countenance, which means prideful, does not seek him, talking about God. All his thoughts are, there is what? There is no God. Now this one, I really like this one. There's more to this, this next one than you think. Psalms 14.1, just the first part, A. It says, the fool has said in his heart, what? There is no God. Now in the Hebrew, there is does not exist in that sentence. When you translate that from the original Hebrew writings, there is isn't in there. In the Hebrew, it just says, the fool has said in his heart, no God. And people always ask me what that means. Well, it, it, it implies someone declining an offer, like somebody saying, uh, would you like coffee? No coffee. It's the same way in the Hebrew. What they're saying is, uh, it's like someone is offering them God, and they're going, no, I don't want God. No God. That's what it, that's what it implies in the Hebrew. So I'm really stunned that people still believe that we have complete control over our future, especially when we have all witnessed how fragile and unpredictable life is. We've all witnessed that, you know? And, you know, here's the thing. If you don't believe that, I want you to just take a walk through a cemetery. Sounds morbid. Anybody ever done that, just walk through a cemetery? Well, you guys are weird. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. You walk through a cemetery sometime, and you look at the headstones, and you will see headstones that go from one day old to 100 plus years old. And what that tells you is that death just doesn't care. Death just doesn't care. Death is the one truly unbiased thing in this world. It doesn't care about your age, your race, your status, your gender. It doesn't care about any of that. It's coming to everyone, and it doesn't care how old you are. Yet we still think that we have the ability to control our own destiny. I mean, once again, this is evidence of how of how cunning the enemy is and how foolish we can be. That's what this evidence, and that's what James is trying to point out. See, we're raised to believe that if you carefully plan out every phase of your life, have you ever noticed that they really want us to be selfish from the time we're born? It's you, 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 plan for you. If you don't do it, no one else will. You know, it's a dog-eat-dog world, and you're wearing a milk bone for a collar and all that stuff. You've heard all that stuff. You know, if not, you can use that one. But um, we all are taught to be selfish. We're taught that our whole life. We're taught that if you, if you plan everything out carefully, and follow it, you are going to succeed because you are in control. So when we do that, we get sidetracked uh, with our goals and with our plans, and we just eventually completely forget about God. I've actually heard people say, I'm too busy to read the Bible. Christians, I'm too busy to go to church. Basically, I'm just, I'm too busy for God right now. That's going to have to be another phase in my life. I've heard people say that. And how crazy is that? I'm too busy for the one who's giving me the breath that I'm breathing? Anybody else find that strange? I'm too busy to give reverence to the one who's allowing me to breathe. I love this. Jesus told a story in the book of Luke that like perfectly illustrates this concept. Look at Luke 12, starting in verse 16. It says, And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, This is what I will do. Now listen to all the personal pronouns here. Listen to the eyes. And he says, This is what I will do. I will tear down my barns, and I, uh, will and I will build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. 
and I will say to my soul, okay, that's creepy. Okay, he says, I will say to my soul. This, this shows you, the com- he thinks he's completely in control of his life and soul. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, what? You fool. This very night your soul is required of you. And now, who will own what you have prepared? You know, I think that is so powerful. So powerful. Have you ever thought about that? This is depressing as heck. You guys are all going to go home like, man, I should have stayed home today. But listen, think about all the stuff you save up for. And then you die, and Biff, the personal trainer, is spending that with your wife. Think about that. I mean, honestly, you are saving up, assuming you're going to be there to enjoy it with them. You may not be. So enjoy the time you have. I, I just don't understand. Have you ever wondered what God would say about you if he came and your time was now? Right in the middle of your plans, right in the middle of doing life, right in the middle of, you know, all the things you've been trying to accomplish your whole life, you're taken home. God calls your name. What would he say? I, I think about that all the time. Would he look at me and say, you know, you've done, I'm proud of you. You've done the best you could with what you had. I'm proud of you. I hope, I mean, I hope he would say that. Or would he say, I wrote down some other things. Or would he say something like, you fool, all the opportunities I had for you, but you thought you could do better on your own. You wasted them. Or would he say something like, you fool, you, I blessed you beyond measure, and you put life, profit, and relationships above me. If you had trusted me, I'd have made all those things so much better for you, and now all those things you plan to enjoy will be uh, enjoyed by someone else. And all that will matter is what you've done for me. I, I, I just hope he doesn't say that to me. You know what I mean? I, and that's something I think we need to think about. Let's move on. In verses 15 and 16 here, he talks about humble life planning. Because James, here he's going to kind of contrast the plans of the humble to the plans of the arrogant. He says, instead... You ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will uh, live and also do this or that. But as, but as it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. So James said that, that we should always leave room for the will of God in every decision we make. In every decision we make. Now, it's okay to make future plans. That's not what I'm saying. It's okay to have a 401k. I'm not telling you not to do that. It's okay to have plans as long as you run them through the screen of Scripture, run them through God. That's all he's asking here. Remember, God loves us. He knows what's best for us, and he wants to provide that for us. He actually wants to do what's best for us. So by seeking God's will, we're not missing out on his best. We are embracing his best when you seek his will. I mean, the easiest way I can, I can give you an example is if you're, imagine if your kids came up to you and said, you know, Mom, I really would like to have Snickers, Twix, and soda for dinner for the rest of my life. As good as that sounds, most of you would probably say no. Is it because you're evil parents? Is it because you hate your children and you don't want them to have fun? That, no, it's because you love your kids, you know what's best for them, and you'd like them to have a diet that doesn't lead to diabetes. You know, that's why. You do that because you love them, you know what's best for them. And most of the time when you do what's best for them, they don't like it, and they say it's not fair. But they will grow up, and you know what they will tell their kids? You can't eat Twix for dinner either. Right? Because we love our kids, and we want to do what's best for them. And that's the same thing with God. God wants to do uh, what's best for us all the time. Now, knowing this, James said the right way to plan your future is according to God's will, meaning you bathe your decisions in prayer. 
Bathe every decision in prayer and, and study, and God will reveal it to you. I have people tell me all the time I can't hear God. And I say, are you reading? No. Are you praying? Mm-mm. I'm like, let me get this straight. You're not talking to him. And his word is how he talks to us. So you're not letting him talk to you. How did you expect to hear him again? You know, I think they're walking around waiting for a burning bush, but those days are, are gone. You know, you have to bathe your life in prayer. And when you're reading the word of God, you'd be shocked how many times he will reveal himself to you through the word of God. I see it time and time again. Right now, James makes a pretty bold statement here. I love this. He says that all such boasting, like boasting about your future without God, is not just arrogant, it's evil, right? And the world, I don't know if you guys have noticed this, but the world really stresses and pushes individualism to a point that it makes us completely self-centered. I mean, completely self-centered. I mean, we love individually claiming complete ownership of everything, including our life. Right? Everything. I mean, think of some of the bold proclamations the world teaches us from when we're little to make. I've got a few of them here. Have you ever heard these? My body, my choice, my rights, my life, my money, my future. Love those personal pronouns. Right? That's what it teaches us, and that's supposed to be someone who's strong and bold. But as believers, we have to remember something. Our lives are not our own. They're not our own. Jesus purchased our lives, and he purchased our eternal lives when he died at Calvary. Look at this, 1 Corinthians 6, 19. He says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? By the way, this isn't in my outline, but I'm going to share it. This is not talking about how much mayonnaise you eat. Okay, I've had people all the time when they're trying to get me to eat healthy. As you can tell, I'm not a fan of it. I think everyone should, just not me. Okay? But they always say, well, the body is the temple. Listen, That's not what this is talking about. If you read the whole chapter, this is talking about sexual immorality. But I threw that in there for free so you would leave me alone about my mayonnaise. Anyway, it says, Or do you not know the body is the temple uh, of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a the price, therefore, therefore glorify God in your body. And the price that we're bought with was the precious blood of Jesus. I love this in 1 Peter, which incidentally, we're going to be doing First and Second Peter after we finish James. 1 Peter 1.18 says, Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from uh, your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. That's how we were purchased. So when we believe in Jesus, we actually accept that in that sacrifice, we're accepting that we're surrendering our life to him. That, that's what we're doing. We're surrendering our life to him. We're accepting the fact that he has purchased us, and, he, and since he's purchased us, we're a new person. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's what? Oh my gosh, that's lame. Let's do that again. Uh, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away, behold what? New things have come. You are someone new when you accept Christ. You're someone new. Now, in our world, people feel like surrendering their lives to anything. Even God is offensive. They've even started teaching our children that they should have choices and decide which direction their life should go. I'm like, my kid would walk around naked at the age of two if I let him make his own decisions. You know, if I let her make her own decisions. It's ridiculous, but they're teaching them that from a very, very young age. They feel like if they surrender their life to God, somehow they're surrendering their peace. And they're surrendering, you know, their, their joy. 
their freedom, which is all ridiculous. Because only those who have truly surrendered to God know true peace. Listen to this, Philippians 4, 6, and 7. This is more than a bumper sticker. It says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, listen to that, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. When you surrender to God, it doesn't take away your peace. It enhances your peace. Because you're giving your life to someone who controls all things. It's not a surrender that, that ends up you know, in a bad way for you, right? And those who surrender to God actually know true freedom. I love this, John 8, 35. Jesus said, the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. So if the son makes you free, this is talking about Jesus, you will be what? Free indeed. Now, in the Greek, in verse 36, it's a little bit different. It says, if the Son of Man makes you eleutheros ontos. And what it means is that translates to, if the Son makes you free, you are truly and really free. That's what, it, that's what it translates out to. Because the life Jesus purchased is one of love and, and, and protection and provision and forgiveness. And that's what makes you free. It takes all those things you worry about out of the way. Now, the Apostle Paul, I, I always talk about the Apostle Paul. I love the man. I love everything he wrote about. He was too wordy, but I like the stuff he wrote about. Okay? And he understood what this surrender was about. And remember, he was a prominent Jew on the Sanhedrin Council. He was the up-and-comer. He was the poster boy for the Jews. Right? And yet, when he surrendered to Christ, he didn't see that as giving anything up. Look at this, Galatians 2.20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but what? Christ lives in me. I love that. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. I love that. And if the Apostle Paul, after all he endured, believed that, shouldn't we? He knew something that we are denying, and that is, even when you're struggling in a life that's surrendered to God, it's more peaceful than a life without it. I just, I, I just love that. And if you've ever had real struggles, you will find out how important that relationship is. If you've ever really been hurting, suffering the loss of someone, or, or because you know you have an illness, if you've ever really been confused and, and in pain, you will find out how important it is to lay that at the feet of Jesus. You'll find out how important that is to say, there's nothing I can do about this. I can't tell you how many times my prayer has been, God, I don't know what to do. See, people think that pastors have it all you know, figured out. We don't. We just pretend to. Right? There are times that I am on my knees saying, God, I have made such a train wreck of everything. I don't know how to fix it. I don't even know what to pray for. Anybody ever prayed that? God, I don't even know what to pray. You know, and I, you should be honest with God. You don't have to get all King James with him. You know, be honest with him. I have literally prayed, prayed God, I, I don't even know what to do. You know what's best for me. Just take control and do what's best for me. Take control and do what's best for them. Because I don't even know how to pray. That feels so good to just lay that at his feet. Now, James finishes up here, uh, kind of talking about sin. Verse 17, he says, Therefore, the one who knows to do the right thing and does not do it, to him it is what? It is sin. So this is a really simple statement. But it's still really, really powerful. And what James was saying is, listen, you know how you're supposed to talk to others. You know you're not supposed to judge others. You know you're not supposed to go around talking behind people's back. You know all these things, yet you're letting the world deceive you right out of it. He's like, listen, if you know what's right and don't do it, you do know that's sin, right? 
Think about it in terms of your kids. If you tell your kids, listen, you can't be out past midnight, and they come in at, you know, at 1, are you going to write them a pass? My dad never did. My dad, we didn't do timeout at my house. We did knockout at my house. <laughs> timeout was my dad resting between spanking seven kids. That's what timeout was in my house. Whew, give me a second. Whew, that's what timeout was at my house. You know, God, you know, God has rules like your parents have rules. Dad was like, listen, here's what time you're going to be home. Well, Dad, I was thinking, I don't care what you were thinking. Here's the rule. You're going to be home at 12, or sitting is going to be a problem. You know? And it didn't matter if I was 17. Just a bigger butt. <laughs> you know what I mean? Didn't matter. Right? One of those things that, you know, I'm throwing in there for free. But if you know what God's expectations are and you ignore them, it's sin. Ignoring them doesn't make them go away, basically, is what James is saying here. Right now, I want to finish with a challenge. I want you to, I want you to go home... To, and I want you to really evaluate your life and look at all the plans you've made. I mean everything. For your marriage, for your home, for your investments, for your retirement. Look at all those and, and be honest. What role does God play in them? What role does he play in them? Is he even in them? Have you consulted him about them? I want you to take a look at that. Then ask yourself, am I allowing God enough control in my life? Because if you're not, I promise you, one day you will wish you did. Because I'm telling you, the absence of God's will in our life eventually ends up being the absence of peace, the absence of certainty, the absence of confidence. That's what ends up missing when we allow God to fade out of our plans. And this is what James was trying to tell them. They had started to become arrogant, and they're writing God off. And he said, you can't do that. Listen, you are children of God. You have to live like it. That's what he was saying. Okay, I'm going to go ahead and close there. We'll pick up there next week, or Nate will. So if you bow your heads, we always like to give an invitation. By invitation, we don't ask people to come up front and do all that pressure some stuff. I, we're just not into that. I just believe in prayer. Listen, one of the things I love about being a believer is prayer. You know, when I coach, I love praying with the kids I coach. I love praying against the other team. And there's sometimes it's hard when you get thumped to pray with the other team. But I love praying. I love it. Because I know that the God who sent his only son to die is listening on his throne to my request, and that's powerful to me. So if you're not sure where you stand, or you just want someone to pray for you, I don't have to know what it is, because God does. But make, make eye contact and put your head right back down. Bless those people, and I'm just going to pray for you. Bless those people. Bless those people. God knows your heart. Bless those people. And if you're watching or listening online, God knows your heart. But you may think I just say that to sound churchy, but I really do pray for that stuff. Bless those people, because I know, I know that prayer can change everything. And believers, I always pray for us, because I just feel like, you know, the time is limited, and we need to get busy. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for all that you do. I thank you for your love, and, and I thank you for your, your mercy and your grace. I know that none of us deserve this. I know that none of us are good enough. None of us can be good enough. But your love for us is so powerful that you did what we could not do. You came down and perfected righteousness in a body and sacrificed that body so that all who believe could have eternal life. We're not trading with you. We're not bargaining with you. You offered a free gift and all we have to do is receive it. And I can't understand that kind of love, but I am so thankful only I know how bad I've been. And I also know how much you love me in spite of me. 
So God, if there's someone here who doesn't know you or listening that doesn't know you, whatever's holding them back, just move it out of their mind, whether it be a bad church experience or, you know, issues they've had with Christian people who are judgmental and condescending, whatever it may be, just move it out of their head. Clear the religion out and let them focus on the love that took you to the cross. And if your word says if they can believe that what you did was enough to guarantee their eternal life, they'll have it. And if they make that decision, I pray they contact us. We would love to start their faith journey with them. But God, for those of us who are believers, let us remember who's in charge. Let us remember that you want what's best for us. Surrendering to you is not surrendering joy, it's acquiring it. Let us embrace the love and joy you've set aside for us. Let us be the kind of people who share that love and joy. Make us an impact on people's lives so that people might come to know you and grow closer to you. We just ask that you would go with us as we leave here and keep us safe. If you don't return before we meet again, let us come together one more time and give you all the praise, honor, and glory you're so worthy of. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.